You're listening to Were You Still Talking? Hello and welcome to another episode of Were You Still Talking? This is Joel Albrecht once again, and with me today I have Robert Ginsberg, the found, founder of Forever Family Foundation, author of Medium Explosion, and currently featured in the Netflix docuseries Surviving Death. I've been investigating, he has been investigating mediumship and other evidence of life after death since 2003 and conducts a certification process by which mediums are evaluated to see if they can do what they claim. Um, he's also the host of Signs of Life radio show and a past editor of Signs of Life magazine. He also has a book out that we'll talk about. So we're going to talk about evidence for life after death, which is very intriguing to me. Grief, mediums, near-death experiences. Um, all, all this is all the interesting stuff about uh, what happens after we pass on. Robert, thank you so much for coming on the show today. Uh, really nice to have you. It's my pleasure to be with you, Joel. Um, the big, I think the big question, well, there's a lot of big questions when you you dive into this stuff. But the, the first thing um, that makes me curious is how, how this started. How, how, did, you, how did you start this investigation? Okay. How did you get interested in investigating mediums? Yeah, and well, if we were um, having this conversation uh, 20 years ago, um, we wouldn't be having this conversation 20 years ago because I thought that the notion of life after death and uh, a surviving, you know, physical death was preposterous. You know, it was wishful thinking um, for those who uh, fear death and they feel comfort in, in believing that there's some place that we go. Um, then, you know, 20 years ago, I won't get into all the details and bore you to tears, but uh, my son and my daughter were involved in a car accident. My daughter didn't survive her injuries. Um, and my son um, had very serious injuries and he subsequently, you know, did survive. Uh, but there were several things that happened. Uh, one happened the morning of that my son and my daughter were involved in the car accident at 3.30 in the morning. Uh, my wife shot up in bed you know, and was sh literally shaking and she was ashen white and trembling. I said, what's the matter? And she said, something horrible is going to happen today. And I said, what? What, what, what does that mean? And she said, I can't tell you exactly, but our lives are going to be devastated today. And so I, I took it seriously, even though I didn't really believe in premonitions or anything like that, because there were many times in our lives together where she had similar things um, and they all played out ex exactly the way she said they were going to play out. They were all good things, but then logically, my, you know, logic told me that if she was right then, she could be right now. And I watched over my three kids during the day as most, parent, most parents would do with that kind of a dire warning. And I blame myself because I let my guard down at night and that, that's when the accident happened. But um, I was in shock for about a month while, you know, my son was recovering from his injuries. And, and then I remembered one, you know, one day that, wait a second, I remembered that morning. I said, well, how did my friend, my wife know? I mean, she knew she was shaking. Wow. And that started yeah. me. Um, I became obsessed with finding out how she knew. Um, and not only that, um, 
I started traveling across the United States, meeting with medical doctors and scientists and researchers that studied consciousness. So I wanted to know if there was any real credible evidence, not any woo-woo stuff, you know, that mm-hmm. told me mm-hmm. that she could still possibly survive. And that's how this, you know, the story began. One thing led to another. And I, you know, I learned as much as I could. I read voraciously. I read hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of books and um, and things you mentioned, some of them, I, I, you know, I learned about near-death experiences and, and, and consciousness and telepathy and remote viewing, ESP and deathbed visions and reincarnation and mm-hmm. electronic voice phenomena and, um, and, and so forth. So um, the more I read and the more I interviewed people, um, I just I couldn't believe that there was just so much evidence that was relatively unknown to the mainstream. Um, and that, you know, got me to, to work even even harder. Eventually, we formed this not-for-profit organization in 2004 called, you know, Forever Family Foundation. Um, and our mission is really just to educate the public about established evidence that we're more than our physical bodies. And that evidence can come from, you know, many different sources. So my life is um, a hell of a lot different now than it was 20 years ago. You know? Yes, I can imagine. Yeah. It, it's always, um, it's interesting to me because most of the stuff, I, I want to believe in all of this. And um, I've seen, uh, I've just talked to too many people, seen too many people who seem very credible talk about, you know, uh, life after death and that there's more to this. Um, at the same time, I've had a very good magician on my show that said he could do, he could uh, convince anyone that he's a medium and that he could read minds uh, because he, he, there's a way to do it as a magic trick, which is interesting. So I'm kind of excited to talk to you who's looking into it, who is very analytical and is, you know, looking into it in a factual way um, and being driven to it, but being driven to it like a lot of people are through through a tragedy and through someone they know passing away. I mean, all the near-death experience stuff I've heard, uh, it's always, it's the person. And um, I've also heard a lot of, I've heard from a lot of medical people who are pretty convinced that there's, you know, that people, that something happens beyond, um, you know, just the brain activity stopping and stuff like that. I don't even know if there's a question there. I'm just, uh, I'm glad to have you looking into it. Yeah, I mean, you have you touched on a few things there. I mean, one the thing that's the most compelling to me about near-death experiences is that um, people meet every definition that medical science has for death. I mean, they have no respiration, they have no brain waves, they have no heartbeat, they have no reflexes. Medical science tells us that they're dead, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. and yet uh, people with all the resuscitative techniques that we have now very often are brought back to life. Um, and at a time when they had none of those things, they had, you know, no brainwaves and so forth, uh, they report these cl- clear and lucid experiences, including being above their body and being at a different location. Uh, not, not everybody has the same experience. I mean, there are about 10 different um, common experiences that people report, but not one experience, that, you know, has them all. Um, but very compelling is sometimes people report back things that they couldn't possibly have known, like conversations that were had in the operating arena, um, you know, uh, 
descriptions of, of the equipment that was being used. There are cases um, Dr. Kenneth Ring wrote about where there were people that have been blind since birth, they've been sightless, and yet they have this experience where they're outside of their body um, and they report back all the colors and everything you know that was going on in in, in vibrant detail. So, um, you know that that that's very compelling to me. You know, a lot of the arguments used probably by some people that you talk to. You know, oxygen oxygen deprivation. It's just a product of a dying brain. It's hallucinations. But you know, um, the lack of oxygen. You know, like fighter pilots and uh, um, and so forth. Hypoxia. When that happens, um, it's anything but clear and lucid thinking. It's disjointed. You're fragments. You're all over the place. You're thrashing about. You know, it, it's the opposite of what you would expect. You know, from a brain that that was dying. So, to me, it's it's a very um, um, important form of, of of evidence. You know that uh, the mind. When I say mind, I could. You could use the term consciousness or even soul, you know, can act independently of the physical brain. Um, and and uh, once you believe that, then all this other stuff that we're talking about uh, becomes plausible, you know, if not probable. Uh, you mentioned mediumship before. So in 2005, you know, with the help of some scientists, I developed a, a medium uh, evaluation certification process. So we wanted to try to identify mediums that really could do what they claim. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. And there are a lot of frauds out there. And there are a lot of um, people that are not necessarily fraudulent, but they have some form of, uh, of intuitive ability, which I think we all do in various degrees, uh, but yet they can't you know, communicate with a discarnate source. And what I found um, in my own work and after talking and witnessing, you know, hundreds upon hundreds of medium readings over the years is that um, roughly uh, 85 to 90 percent of all the mediums that are practicing today cannot do what they claim. You know, only, okay. only 10 to, 10 okay. to 15 percent can. Um, and uh, what you mentioned before, like you had on a magician, you know, and he's talking about cold reading techniques. Um, and, you know, I could do the same thing, make generalizations, you know, I could notice uh, the dilation in your, in your pupils and little head movements and, you know, body language, and I can make certain assumptions, you know, and, and I could give you correct information. So, Joel, if you're the medium and you're giving a reading to me and you're looking at me and you say, Bob, I have your great grandmother here in spirit, do you have a great grandmother who's passed? Like, yeah, you know, it should be 130. <laughs> yeah, that's you know, a pretty easy one. <laughs> you, know, so that's, you know, it's not very evidential. You know. Right, right. You know. On the other hand, if you said to me, I have your grandmother, Rebecca, here, and her name was Rebecca, I'd give that more weight than somebody just making a general general statement. Um, so, uh, and there is a difference between, because you also mentioned, you know, reading minds, you know. So there are some right. people that are very right. gifted psychically. And, you know, they could read minds, uh, uh, other living minds, but they have no ability to communicate with a, dis with a discarnate entity, somebody that's no longer in the physical world. So there's, distinct, there's a distinct distinction between the two. And it's very hard for us when we're evaluating the evidence because we have to separate psychic information from mediumistic information, you know. And how in the world do you evaluate 
the evidence. I mean, there's, I'm not a scientist or a doctor, but um, I read a lot of stuff. And from what I, well, there's two things that I kind of understand. We know very little about consciousness. Like, there's still no real evidence of how consciousness even exists um, and why, you know, whether or not it exists in other species and things. Um, but how do you go about, like, what kind of um, evidentiary science do you, are, is being used? Well, to- you know, first of all, we, you know, we don't conduct it as a scientific experiment because, you know, we're not scientists. But, mm-hmm. but we do um, set up uh, controls, you know, so it's, it, the, the whole process takes place under controlled conditions. And what we do is we, um, we train sitters um, uh, in mediumship and how to score a reading and what's evidence, what's general, you know, information. And, and they, so they have a, some extensive training. And then the, a medium, when they finally make it to the point of, of going through interviews and applications and so forth, when we evaluate them, they are required to do five readings for five different trained sitters. Um, and the scoring is based on composite scoring. And there's five different scoring methods that we use. Um, and as I alluded to before, uh, significant evidence is weighted more heavily than, you know, than general evidence. Uh, so using that other example, I would have to mark that as a hit if, if you said that my great-grandmother passed because it's true. But, uh, but it's hardly evidential. But if you gave me an exact name or other very specific information, we would weight that more heavily. Um, and so, you know, if a medium, uh, uh, which is only about 10% of the time, you know, meets all of our minimum guidelines, then we grant them, you know, certification and so forth. And certainly no money cha- ever changes hands. We don't charge for the process. Or we don't want to... Um, uh, mess with the integrity, you know, of the program. And even after they're, they're certified, we just list their name as a, as a resource for the bereaved. Uh, the problem for us, since we've been doing it for so long, is that many of the mediums that we've certified over the years have gone on to become famous. Um, and when, you know, TV shows, oh. and books, and you know what happens when somebody becomes famous, you know, they First of all, they have waiting lists, you know, of two, three years, you know, and wow. if you're somebody yeah. that's grieving and you want a medium reading and you call them and they say, oh, I can read you in three years, that doesn't uh, do much good. No, Plus they're charging no, no. Ridiculous amounts of money and, and, and so forth. So we have to, you know, keep identifying more uh, mediums that are, that are accessible, that are qualified. So it's, it's not a, you know, it's a hard thing to do, but uh, we keep working at it. So the and people that come to you and they're looking for a medium um is it does it just is it usually people who have had a tragedy recently or does it kind of is there all kinds of different situations that people come for and and part 2 of the question is what kind of stuff uh you know what are they looking for cuz I've I've kind of been so so about the the idea of actually speaking to someone who's passed um for one i don't want to bother them (laughs) they're done they did their time here but uh so what i mean what kind of things i'm sure it would be helpful if someone's grieving it seems like it would be what what kind of stuff do people want to know well 
you know, to answer your question, I'd say that probably, you know, 95%, if not more, of the people that seek the services of a medium are in grief. You know, they, yeah. they've had a loss. It's usually a, a recent loss. Um, and a lot of them are kind of on the fence. They don't know whether they really believe in life after death or not. Um, but they, you know, desperately uh, will, they'll try anything for the possibility of speaking to their, you know, deceased loved one. So most people that go to mediums, um, yeah, but by, just by definition, are, you know, are bereaved. And the information that, they, that they're looking for is evidence or identifying, you know, information. You know, sometimes it's not even information that comes through. The medium will take on the personality of, of, of their loved one. Mm-hmm. Um, but most of the time, you know, this, the kind of things that come through are sometimes names, you know, age, uh, um, you know, how they died. Their likes and dislikes, uh, you know, uh, you know, activities that their loved one was engaged in, and you know, things that uh, will help you, you know, to identify them so that you'll know that they're really talking to them. Uh, however, I've seen, you know, many times I'll, I'll witness a reading that's horrible. You know, general stuff after general stuff, but the person in grief is is so. Um, desperate that they'll just latch on to anything you know and sometimes they'll hear things that the medium didn't you know really say and and i get that and that's why we try to protect you know the public you know yeah when you you think about it i mean they're sitting um uh, with people that have are in various stages of mental health really i mean grief is part of mental health and there are no regulatory bodies you know there are no proficient proficiency guidelines there are no licensing boards. There are no ethical guidelines. You know, there's no continuing education. So tomorrow you could open up your Joel the Medium, hang up a shingle on your house and start charging people a couple hundred bucks for a reading. You know? so, so, so you're saying it's like being a podcaster. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. There's good ones and there's bad ones. You know? uh, so, um, so it, you know, I always caution, you know, mediums it's before they – think about becoming a medium and doing that work, you know, professionally, um, it comes with a lot of, uh, a lot of pressure and a lot of responsibility, you know, because just sitting with people that are really just, you know, hanging on by a thread sometimes. So, a me- you know, a, uh, I've seen one of the things that were featured in the, in the Netflix series that you mentioned in surviving death was we let them come and film one of our grief retreats. We hold, four different uh, grief retreats per year. And we have certified mediums and grief professionals and metaphysical practitioners and so forth. But the great thing about it is we see people that they'll come in um, on Friday um, afternoon and they can barely speak. I mean, you know, the grief is palpable and uh, they're not, you know, they're in terrible shape. And by the time the weekend is over, especially if they received a very evidential, you know, medium reading, mm-hmm. you see a lightness and, and, you know, and they're laughing, you know, and, and uh, it can have long lasting effect of effects. And it really flips the way they think about, uh, about death. And that's a wonderful thing. However, the opposite could be true. You know, you don't oh, know okay. your loved one still exists. You get a lousy reading or a fraudulent one and you walk away saying, you know, this is just a crock. 
and it, you know, it's all bull and, and right. Right. And, and, they, and, and it's, it has the opposite effect. So it, that's why I say it comes with a, a lot of responsibility. I mean, like you mentioned, it's a really hard time in anyone's life. Um, you know, I have, I have fairly positive views of death, you know, when people die, that it's not the end of life. It's not the end of existence, I'll say. Even if you just are part of the uh, ether again, you're still, you still exist somehow. But, I, you know, I, I think the consciousness goes on. Um, but that all goes out the window for me when um, there's actually someone dying in front of you. It's a, it's, a, it's a big difference. So I know, you know, I understand it. it uh, grief is a really hard place, and it, it, it's, a, it's a tough place to be communicating with someone in tough time. So, I mean, for one, yeah. it's, it's great that in any way that can be helped. And it's, I mean, there's two sides of it because, yeah, getting a bad reading, if someone's working as a sort of fraudulent medium, that's terrible. I mean, they're just taking advantage of it. But if somebody is not, if they're sincere about it and, the, or, and they are sincere that they can do that, then that seems like it would be an amazing help. Um, yeah. You know, yeah. You know Joel, uh, many in the Victorian era, I mean, there, there were, I mean, I called my book the medium explosion, but there were an, an explosion of mediums back then, you know, like uh, more than, you know, uh, you know, like 150 years ago. Uh, mediumship was very popular. The difference is there was no internet. So you couldn't find out information about anybody, you know? Right, I mean, right. Uh, and now it's it's a real concern. I mean, we, we caught a medium. She was doing a, a reading, uh, you know, with COVID. And, uh, mediums stopped doing in-person readings. Everything was on Zoom or, and so, or different platforms. So what she, just as we're doing now, she had the, the sitter's name, first name and last name. And she had the, the sitter uh, up on one half of her screen. And on the other half of her screen, she had uh, the person's Facebook page open. Ouch. Yeah. And so she was giving the reading <laughs> and she was spinning back, you know, every single oh personal fact that she saw on Facebook. And the sitter, people, that's why I try to educate people about this stuff, because the sitter, they, they thought this was the greatest medium that ever lived. How could she possibly know this, this information, you know? And it was total, it was a total fraud. So it is a concern. Um, and uh, people should give a, when they, when they have a reading, um, they should give as little information as possible. As a matter of fact, during the reading, you only want to give yes or no type answers. Yes, I understand. No, I don't. You know, but people will get so excited about, you know, maybe this medium speaking to the loved one, you know, say, well, you know, I'm getting your son, um, uh, you know, you have a son that's passed. And then the sitter will say, oh, yes, you know, and he was on the track team and he was he was a scholar and he did this and they gave the whole life story, you know, um, you know, so you want the medium to give you information, you know, not for you to provide. They call that feeding the medium, you know. Well, and that's how the magicians do it. That's exactly what yeah. the magician was talking about. That's uh, Houdini actually went around the world and and uh, he would he. Um, vowed to pay any medium or mind reader that could prove that that they were real, and he caught hundreds of people, literally, you know, pulling strings under tables and and doing all kinds of nasty stuff. And this was in the nineteen teens, I think. This, but it was the same thing. So, I mean, you talk about how they've been around a long time. Yes, it's been a very popular um, 
idea for a long time. And someone looking at a Facebook page is being lazy because now they could pay a few dollars and get, you know, information from Google, like really deep information about people. So yeah, I would be very suspicious on a Zoom call, <laughs> like how, yeah. how much that medium is just, it's just too easy, unfortunately, right now. You, you have yeah. to be aware, you know, in, in all the many years um, that we've been doing this work, I never had a, a reading personally with one of our certified mediums. And the only reason that I say that is because I couldn't trust the information because they all knew something about me. They, they knew too much. So in my mind, I would always be questioning, even though I tested them and I know that they're mm -hmm. great mediums, mm -hmm. Uh, it wouldn't serve any purpose for me. Um, and in my, my wife uh, passed away about a year and a half ago. And uh, one of my good friends uh, asked me if I would like to have uh, a reading with another medium that's not certified by the foundation, but she also appeared in that Netflix series. And uh, as a matter of fact, I had... Uh, help this person score um, information from readings, you know, because uh, this, actually her name was Leslie Kane and she wrote the book Surviving Death. Um, so I said, you know what? Yes, I would like to have a reading with her because I know she's a good medium on one condition. The only inform information I'm going to give her is my name is Bob and that, you know, God knows how many Bobs there are in the world. So that's not to identify. And uh -huh. I said, in order to pay for the reading, I asked my friend to, to pay for it using her PayPal account, so it couldn't be traced, you know, back to me. So those were my safeguards, you know. Right, um, right. And then, so then when I did get a, it happened, I did get a wonderful evidential reading, uh, but I knew that the medium, there was no possibility she was cheating, so I appreciated that. But I'm not suggesting everybody has to go to those extremes, but you, you have to be careful. <laughs> yeah, and I love it when it's, uh, um, a guest answers a question that I haven't asked yet because that was one of my questions if you had had if you had had a reading and and you know yeah. how, how that is for you and well I, you know um after my daughter passed I mm -hmm. my wife uh, dragged me to go see a, a very high profile medium because I, I I didn't believe in it but listen I was in bad shape and I was desperate and I'd try anything um and you know, on the on the drive home, uh, you know, during the reading, the medium brought through my daughter and gave three extremely, extremely um, uh, remote uh, pieces of evidence that nobody could possibly have known. You know, besides besides my wife, you know, they, it was just so obscure and you couldn't look it up or anything. And I, I just I drove home that whole hour drive and. I just was trying everything to try to figure it out, you know, like the magician would. Like, how oh, did, right, right. How did she do right. this? It has to be a way. And I couldn't come up with anything. And, and it was, the things were so obscure that that was, that opened me up. I'm not, I'm not saying that after that I believed in it, but at least I was open to it. So I became an open-minded skeptic, which is different than being a closed-minded skeptic because a closed-minded skeptic won't, well, just you could show them the evidence, and they just won't acknowledge the evidence. You know, an open-minded skeptic, you know, just questions everything but follows the evidence, and and went. so I, you know, for the first, I'd say seven or eight years that I was doing this work, 
despite the fact that I was speaking about it and writing about it and all this stuff, I didn't fully buy into it, you know, which, so you might call me a hypocrite, but, um, you know, but it, but it took me a good eight years before I just relented under the weight of the evidence because I just learned and saw too much. Plus personal experiences. You know, there are, you know, you could learn and research and read book after book after book, but then if you have some sort of a profound personal experience, that's more convincing than anything else. You know, I, I like to say that a lot of people, like if you ask for a show of hands in a, in a large group of how many people believe in an afterlife, about 80, 90% of people are going to raise their hands. But what they're really saying is that they hope there's an afterlife, you know, because maybe their religion tells them that or, you know, the, the media or this or that. Oh, and, yeah. And yes. it comes to they hope. And then, then right. that hope sometimes based upon some of the things, the research and experiences that, that morphs into a belief. And then, and usually it comes after a profound personal experience, that belief turns into a knowing. And once you, you reach that knowing stage, um, you really don't fear death anymore. And, you know, like now I have absolutely no fear of death, whereas I spent a good sp- uh, part of my, my life um, really in, in fear, you know, like a phobia, you know, just I couldn't oh, imagine wow. being extinguished forever, you know, made, oh, okay. of, you know, it was horrible. How can I uh-huh. cease to exist? It was horrifying, you know, but um, I think that's one of the things that comes with, you know, the, you know, this belief or this knowing is that, you know, if you think you're going someplace else, uh, it's maybe someplace better, you know, <laughs> you, uh, it's not, not as a, a daunting proposition. Well, I like it. It's, far more more valuable to me somehow that the person who started your organization is what is basically a skeptic you know what or that i mean you started on that premise which is um i mean i don't skepticism is good to a degree uh i guess there's skepticism and there's believing in conspiracies that's different but uh, <laughs> the, yeah. I, it's it gives more credibility i think that you were not instantly on board with oh yeah um, mediums exist there's an afterlife you know this is real but you were more you were still interested in investigating it and and helping prove to people that um that there's re, you know that it might exist which is pretty incredible i still am not i'm still on the fence but I don't feel, I haven't, I don't know that I've ever feared death. I think when I was younger, I was just too much an, an idiot and <laughs> as I grew older, uh, I did, you know, meet some spiritual teachers who, even though they never talked about an afterlife, they made it clear that there's more, more to this world than what we see, far more. So that kind of helped helped me yeah. you know, so i fear pain much more than death yeah <laughs> i the, even fear the like pain just before death i don't know <laughs> yeah yeah the death actual, doesn't really scare me it i don't you know yeah. fear death i i fear the dying process especially if it's you know the, i don't want to suffer you know right nor yeah. does anybody you know but you know uh one of the the turning points for me when we talk about when i when i talk about like your your mind acting independently of your physical brain i don't i don't know if, if you're familiar with the remote viewing program but um back in during the cold war uh, our own cia developed this remote 
viewing program to spy on the Russians. And essentially, there is the Russians- a hilarious movie about that called Staring at Goats. That yeah. is a comedy, but I know that's based on real world stuff. It's real stuff. And, yeah. and I, and I, I read um, a tremendous amount about remote viewing um, some written, you know, a hundred years ago. Um, so I decided to do my own experiment and this is only back about 15 years ago. And I, I sent the thing out to membership that every night for five consecutive nights um, at a set hour of 9 p.m. Eastern time, I was going to draw a picture. That's all I said, you know, and I'm a lousy artist, but even so, you know, the possibilities, when I just say draw a picture, could be anything. Mm-hmm. So and I purposely wouldn't think of what I was going to draw until like 30 seconds before nine o'clock. So try to eliminate the possibility of people reading my mind. And I asked anybody that, even if they don't think they have any kind of ability, intuitive ability at all, like to join in at the end of the the, fi- the, f- the fifth night to put their drawings in an envelope and physically, you know, mail them to me. So to compare them with my drawings. And on the last day on Friday, I said, just to screw with everybody, I said, I'm not going to draw a picture. I'm going to draw a geometric shape. And I drew a, a dot with the concentric circles, you know. Mm-hmm. So, we finished the experiment, and, and envelopes start coming in, good number of them, and I start opening them up, and it was really disappointing. You know, there was really nothing there as far as I could see. I could, I could stretch uh, here and there, but I, I wasn't going to do it. And I was just about, you know, giving up, saying this is a total failure. And the last envelope I opened up was from a woman in Bend, Oregon. And I opened it up, and I'm just staring at it. Three of the pictures were exactly uh, what I drew. And I was trying, even though I'm a lousy artist, I was drawing as much detail as I could. You know, one day I drew a colonial house with, you know, five windows and a chimney on the left with curling smoke and the sun shining in the right and a winding path. But she had every detail there exactly. And on the, and, the, and those concentric circles with the dot, she, could, she nailed that exactly, exactly the way I drew it. Um, the interesting thing was, I drew that those that geometric shape on Friday, but she drew it on Thursday. Oh, so that, wow. so, so that raised the question of who's remote viewing who, you know? Right. But, but 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 the reason that this was so compelling to me is that okay, I'm sitting in New York where I was at the time, um, and my brain is sitting in my skull. And this woman is sitting three thousand miles away, and her brain is housed in her skull. So how is it possible, you know, if, if material science is right, you know, this, this should not be possible. How can she gain information into what, you know, I am drawing 3,000 miles away? Something is traveling, you know. Traveling is not the exact, you know, word, but something is going on. And that's what really uh, got me intrigued because it's not something I read about in a book. I controlled this, you know, informal experiment, so I knew there was – no fraud involved. So, um, you know, th- there are a lot of things like distant healing and, and, and uh, all sorts of uh, disciplines that show that our minds can act independently of our physical brains. And if you believe that, uh, then why shouldn't we survive our physical death? Because our consciousness, physical brain is gone, but, uh, gone, but that's immaterial. You know, our consciousness just leaves the body and goes somewhere else. You know, so... In order to, to lay the foundation for believing in life after death, 
you first have to believe that that our consciousness, our minds, can act independently. That's very interesting, and a lot of people find that out um, from taking hallucinogens, and <laughs> where yeah, they they find out there's more to their consciousness than they could ever imagine. Um, but uh, that my point was, it's. It still seems like science, like I don't even, I can't even conceive yet, probably someone can, of how, how can you prove that? You know, what, what, what part of science is, uh, I, I mean, I assume it's neurological science, um, but maybe not. Maybe there's a part of science that we haven't even thought of that will be able to, you know, show real proof or evidence that that's happening like what what kind of stuff have you read or or have you you know do you see any um groundbreaking things happening other than people just things like well, you things like you've said remote you yeah. know incredible remote viewing experiences other than experience i guess um, yeah well there are a lot of researchers yeah. um you know dean radin was uh the uh, chief scientist at the institute of noetic sciences and he wrote a lot of book about consciousness and he did a tremendous uh, number of, of experiments uh, with presentiment uh, you know uh, predicting or sensing things you know before they happened and and uh, and projecting images to somebody that's in a, a Faraday cage that's shielded so it shouldn't you know be possible to project an image from one person you know to another um, he also did uh, a meta meta meta-analyses of all the laboratories around the world that did similar experiments. And, and when you crunch the numbers, uh, the odds against chance of it happening sometimes are in the billions to one. So they did, I mean, the Pear Lab at, at Princeton University spent uh, a decade uh, uh, doing similar work. I mean, J.B. Rhine, you know, back in the 1920s, uh, which is now his work continues at the Rhine Institute, was the first one that was experimenting with the uh, ESP. Um, and some of the experiment, experiments were quite simple. I mean, he had what he developed, like they're called Zener cards, and they're five different cards with five different geometric shapes. Mm -hmm. um, and he would just, you know, randomly, you know, shuffle them. And then you as the, as the, um, the person being uh, giving the information, uh, the experimenter would, you had to guess what card the experimenter was going to turn up next. So you or I would have a 20% chance, right? There were five cards, you know, so we should have a, just by guessing, there's a 20% chance that we'll get it right. But if, if you start getting back, you know, 30%, you know, that's huge because that's not, you know, especially with a large pool, um, you know. So he, he was a forerunner in, in a lot of that stuff. But you're right. Um, I mean, you mentioned consciousness really. Nobody in the world today can tell you what consciousness is. Right. After all the right. work. Nobody can tell you. No one can know. tell you. And it's and right. with, in the animal kingdom, it's the same. Animals do things, communicate in ways that we can't understand at all. They communicate over hundreds of miles sometimes. and um, Or they communicate things that we don't, you know, scientists watch them for years and don't get why, why you know, how they're doing certain things yeah. how, uh, you know it's so it's interesting it's very interesting and the um it's just curious because there is so much for years there has been evidence and there's been all kinds of 
different people who who've discovered things and done experiments and um but there still seems like the majority of the world is a skeptic you know you started out in that camp and, and especially science the scientific world um most of doctors doctors are worried about being ostracized if they talk about openly about life after death some i mean some of the people who've written books about it who have actually had ndes and written about it have been basically kicked out of their respective careers but yeah. you know whatever that was so it, it's interesting you're right i mean it's it, 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 and one of the things that we try to do is just get people to share what they experience you know what they've learned and experienced and if, if people would share it with you know family or friends or colleagues or people that they they know um it would enter into the mainstream in a, in a more significant way and people would would stop, you know, hiding it for fear of being judged or ridiculed. Uh, you know, uh, quite a while back, um, it was about two years after my, my daughter passed, uh, I went to see my family doctor, uh, who was a, a friend of mine. Um, I don't remember why I went there. I had some ailment and he saw me for the first time in two years and he asked me how I was doing. Okay. He says, what have you, you been doing? I said, you really want to know? He said, yeah. <laughs> he said, I'm, I'm studying survival of consciousness. And he, he looked at me. Um, and then we started talking more. And 10 minutes later, he says, can I ask you something? I said, well, he says, what, what's survival of consciousness? And I started <laughs> talking about all this stuff that we're talking about now. Uh -huh. And to make a long story short, after about 20 minutes, he had a real serious look on his face and he closed the door and he said, I have to tell you something. So my father died seven years ago. He said, and I had a lot of patients that were sick in the hospital and I had to call my answering service. So I called my answering service to check on them and they said, oh, doctor, your father called. And he said, my father died at nine o'clock this morning. And they said, oh, I'm so sorry, doctor. He must have said your father-in-law. He says, my father-in-law has been dead for, for 19 years. He says, what, what time did the call come in? He said, 9.15. He said, read me back the message. And the message was, hi, it's me. I'm okay. Just, wow. Just, just like that. Whoa. So, wow. And so the thing, the reason I tell that story is because he's a, he's a medical doctor. I, I get mm -hmm. that. But he's, he held that in, you know, for the years until, you know, he saw me. And I guarantee you to this day, you know, it's been... 15 years since then, he's never mentioned it to his wife or to his kids or to certainly not to a colleague, you know, not to a friend, but he heard the crap that was coming out of my mouth. He knew I wasn't going to judge him, you know? <laughs> right, you know? right. But, but what a shame to have an experience like that um, and just to share it with somebody, you know, let them, you know, judge, you know, whether it's real or not. But, um, and it's a shame because a lot of people have these, um, experiences that defy mainstream thinking and they're just afraid to talk about. Oh, I guess that, yeah, that's true. That, that is a shame. It's, it's really unfortunate. Um, I, I guess I run with a crowd will talk about anything, but it, it definitely, there, there's a lot of that. A lot of people are worried yeah. about what people are going to think, you know, if they, they actually talk about these things openly. Yeah. Um, I remember like, years ago, you know, we used to physically take a lot of calls from people. It was mostly my wife that answered, but um, 
she, she was a bit hard of hearing to begin with. And sometimes I'd, somebody would call, it'd be late at night, she'd still pick up the phone. And I could hear her say, you know, could you speak up? You know, why are you whispering? And it turns out because the person was calling from the Bible belt. And, you know, God forbid somebody would hear oh, no. talking about an afterlife and, she'd right. be, you know, that was it, you know. And so it, it's a real thing, you know, and, and people, uh, it's it's gotten better over the years now, mm-hmm. uh, uh, you know, with the media uh, attention and, uh, and everything else. But uh, we still have a while to go. It, it definitely was those, uh, like you say, programs being so popular with different mediums from different places. I see some of these programs and I get more skeptical, but that's, that's my own judgment issue. That has yeah. nothing to do with the, the personality. Um, yeah, it's, it, it is bizarre. And the other thing that has always, that, that always kind of, you mentioned the Bible Belt, and that's what's really kind of amazing is that America is a very religious country. You know, it's, it's many of our, uh, even our laws, even though they're not supposed to be, are based on religion. And um, but people—it seems like people with strong religious beliefs are some of the ones who are the have the biggest fear of death, and and you know have the hardest time actually believing in the afterlife. Maybe that's because they have such a uh, strict view of what it should be, and they hear about something that's not exactly that view, and it it throws them. I don't know. It, well, it's also seems, because. You know, the- what what they what they're taught you know the rules i mean if you do this this and this you're going to go here but right. if you do this this and this you're going to be burning out you know so why how, why would you not be fearful that's <laughs> you know? true oh you know that's that's a good point because i i remember i don't remember which friend it was but i told somebody uh when i first was kind of awakening to spiritual stuff that i didn't believe in the concept of hell and that just scared scared the crap out of them that just really scared them. They they couldn't understand that, and then it's like, oh, okay, <laughs> I don't know how to deal with that. Yeah, I know. It's 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 um, you know there there are people um, we don't encounter it as as much, but um, it used to be a, an issue that people would chastise us for the work that we're doing, even the you know the science mm-hmm. because it flies in the against you know a lot of religions you know it's okay for the people within the religion the higher ups to practice some of these things but you're not supposed to do that you're not supposed to communicate with with you know with god and so forth but the fact is that the founders of today's modern day religions all came out of these ages of mysticism when all this stuff was um was was part of everyday life. People commune with their ancestors. People communicated, you know, telepathically. Um, and, you know, after the the dogma started coming in, I mean, all religions were the same. They were based on compassion and, and, and love without rules. But once mm-hmm. the rules started mm-hmm. coming in, that's where I think we, we lost it a bit, you know. Yeah, and I know it's an unpopular belief in in religious circles, but I all those rules were... Those were made up to control people, right. and uh, yeah, when you you need something. It's interesting because I read the book *Sapiens*, which is about the history of mankind, basically, and how how important it is for people to have rules at a certain point. You know, when they when there's so many of us, if you don't have something to believe in, it's really tough. I mean, it's kind of amazing now uh, because I, you know, I, I think there's very few people who believe in religion. 
um, strictly, um, like strictly strict religion and strict. But all of us have morals. All of us follow rules to the point that our society doesn't break down. Um, th this always amazes me. I mean, we're that we don't. Uh, you know, our society doesn't break down into a madhouse like all the apocalyptic movies because we're really just being polite, right? We're not, yeah. it's not like we were afraid of something. You're not, it's not, there's not that much, um, the rules aren't that well enforced, but we all kind of follow them anyway, basically. You know, the, the thing that struck me, you know, early on in this work is that if you, you know, talk to people that have near-death experiences in some of these channeled reports and history. Um, you know, it's it, like near-death experiences will tell you that they have a life review, many of them. Mm -hmm. And that life review is like a movie reel that just flashes, you know, before your eyes. And you see basically your whole life unfold before you. But as it's unfolding, you get to feel all of the good and the love and the help that you provided to others, but you also feel tangibly, you know, the pain um, and the hardship um, that you caused to others as well. And that can't be a comfortable thing, you know, and, and the, the consensus is that we are, um, it's all self judgment, you know, but like after we pass on to this next world, it's not a tribunal that says you go here, or you go there. We go where we think we go. We should we belong based upon our own judgment, you know. And to me, that always made a lot more sense, you know. So, uh, right, but there's, that, right. that still gives you the incentive uh, to lead a, uh, you know, a compassionate and uh, empathic life, you know. So, you know, and, and to help people because. Hell, who, who wants to feel bad, you know? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah. The better you treat people, the better you're going to feel anyway. And I mean, that's just common sense. Um, right. One of the most interesting um, theories that I heard was from Deepak Chopra, I think it was, where he, he wrote, it was just a quote I saw on some social media or something, but he was talking about how all these NDEs and near, uh, that people have, are showing them like the beginning of what's going to happen. And that made a lot of sense to me. Like you're seeing this because you're, you're not really staying there. And if you do stay there, it's going to go beyond what we can possibly explain. Uh, I, I've, that part I really do believe that the, the, the spirit world, the afterlife, the, um, you know, the, what's it called? Well, some people call it God, but the grand consciousness the is yeah. not really explainable to us. We're experiencing a very uh, linear existence um, in our earthly vessels, I guess you'll say. And that, yeah, so th that always made a lot of sense to me. And it also explains why people see things so differently. You know, you have, like you said, there's like 10 common... Um, ideas that people seem to express and some people see it in a very sort of relig more religious way it seems like Other people from different places of the world i've i've understand see it differently like they have different experiences so it definitely is based on what you what you've learned here and it, then it, it maybe uh that's just you know whatever's after that is you can't possibly explain it yeah, I think you're exactly right. I mean, because, um, you know, we have to 
the test, what the but the problem of putting their experience into words, and that's why they call it ineffable, you know, so, so they, um, they don't have a hard time, you know, doing that, but you can only put it into language based upon your own frame of reference, you know, so, um, and, and so like you mentioned, you know, somebody, um, you know, in one part of the world might talk about seeing Buddha on the other side and somebody else might talk about seeing Jesus, somebody else. It's all based upon your own, you know, uh, frame, frame of reference. Um, the thing that always, the interesting thing about near-death experiences is that almost all the time when people do come back um, and after they're resuscitated, they, they tell us that they were told um, that it's not their time you know and, and right you know I, yeah that is pretty common isn't it yeah yeah so what, what about all the people that don't get resuscitated you know i guess it was their time it, there's, you know, <laughs> you know, so, told, it's your time like like in the last episode of this is us <laughs> <laughs> but yeah yeah i guess that's true you that's a very interesting point they do usually get told that very interesting it, it's just um when I read or hear people talk about near-death experiences, it's almost, I don't think I've ever seen one that was negative. I mean, they've been hard, you know, there's been hard things that happen, but never really a negative experience. It, it all sounds, and the same with, with uh, uh, readings, mediumship readings that are, you know, that we assume are legit. It's, it's not many, yeah. many negative ones that come out of that. Yeah, I mean, there are a certain uh, percentage of, of NDEs that are negative. It's a small, you know, probably, you know, 10% or possibly, you know, 15%. But again, um, that, you know, could be attributed to one's beliefs. I mean, if you thought that you were going to burn in hell for something and, you know, that might cause, you know, uh, you might start to panic and it might be, a, you know, a negative thing. Your other point, though, is true. And, and which is quite amazing to me, you know. So in in the past twenty years, I never uh, witnessed a negative medium reading. It's only you know positive, loving information, um, and and I believe that we do have you know both positive and negative forces in the world, you know, and and, and this world and the next world. So mm -hmm. it always was curious when I asked the mediums. I mean, how come you never bring through anything that that's dark or or negative? Their answer was always that I asked the universe or my guides or whatever to surround me with, you know, with, with white light and not allow any of that information to come through. Um, probably a responsible medium, if they received a, a dire thing, would not convey that to the sitter anyways. But uh, it is curious to me that never does, uh, does negative information get through, you know, for whatever reason. That's real. That is interesting. So you, you never hear the, them say, "Oh, Uncle Bob's with me," and he just he never liked you. You, you yeah. never. <laughs> you don't get that. I, you know, you know, Joel. I take that back. Once it was about eighteen years ago. I was at this retreat um, that another some medium was was holding in England, and there was a medium that got up there, and he did just what you were talking about. He's bringing through this woman's uncle and he goes, oh, I have your uncle here. And he goes, 
wow, what a son of a bitch. This guy, you know? <laughs> <laughs> I, was like, I was like a Paul. And it was, I thought it was like a shtick, you know, it was like he's doing a, a stand up, you know, but it, he was bringing through negative thing after that. But that was the only time I ever saw that. Oh, that's funny. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, good. I'm glad it doesn't happen a lot. Yeah. <laughs> wow. Well, this has been a, a great conversation. I think I should uh, let you get back to your work because it's really good work. I appreciate. Oh, we we didn't even hardly talk about your your book. We mentioned it briefly. Yeah. Well, the the, the book uh, is called The Medium Explosion. People can find it on on Amazon. Mm-hmm. Um, the website um, you could find out about all the stuff we're talking about is foreverfamilyfoundation.org. Um, you also write a blog uh, called beyondthefivesenses.com. So um, you can always get in touch with me in any of these ways. <laughs> uh, that's great. And all of that stuff will be in the links, in the description, of course. Okay. Of course, 100%. Um, so, yeah, I guess we should wrap it up. And I'll just say this has been, were you still talking? I am Joel Albrecht, and I've been talking to Bob Ginsberg, founder of Forever Family Foundation. It's been an amazing conversation. Really appreciate having you on the show. Um, Learn a lot. And and I really appreciate the work you're doing. Like I say, it's, um, I like seeing someone who's out there trying to investigate and and, um, validate uh, this type of science. Some people call it pseudoscience. I would call it science. It's it's something that I think is just not discovered yet. I, it, it, that's where it seems to me. It's so discovering new grounds, opening new territory. It's really been fantastic having you on. Thanks a lot. Thanks. I really enjoyed it, Joe. Thanks. All right. And as I always say, be good to each other and be good to yourself. <laughs>